Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. It's good to be here with you. If you're a first-time guest, I'll introduce myself. My name is Mike. I'm happy uh, to be here worshiping God uh, where I am, but you may not be where I am. You could be in jail. You could, <laughs> you could be in um, Indiana. You could be in the Petroleum Valley. Uh, that's okay. You're still in the same church. We are one church with several locations. And um, I'm going to jump in on where David is. David is on the run again. You just, if, you're, if you're new here, we've been going through 1 Samuel, and David is in a, like a, a, a five-season Netflix adventure film. I mean, he is running every week from a new danger. This one is kind of tame compared to what he normally goes through. He just goes up and hides in these hills near the Dead Sea. Um, and if you've ever been to Israel uh, to visit, or if you ever go, you can walk right up into those caves today, and nobody will chase you. I don't think uh, it's hot. Um, but we know, last week Scott preached, and he let us know that, 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 that David is constantly scared, constantly on the run, has many bad things happening to him for a reason. Scott explained it's because God is beating him into the shape of a king. He, he used the picture of how you beat a sword uh, until it's the shape you want to kill people with, apparently was the point. Um, and he's, he's, God's doing that with him. Uh, and... and uh, how do you prepare a king? Uh, you want a humble man. You want a man who relies on God. And, uh, and David's proving his mettle at every point. Now, you are probably never going to be the king of anything. Uh, nor will I. Or the queen. Because kings and queens are kind of gone by the wayside in most countries, not counting Thailand and maybe Saudi Arabia. Most places don't have kings or queens. And, and you, you'd hope that God doesn't beat you like a a red-hot sword that needs to be beat into shape. But, and here's the the but that you don't want to hear, God requires a lot from every one of his servants, not just the ones who are going to become kings, not just from David and other Bible guys, right? Um, Bible guys, we expect to see them go through the ringers. They're Bible guys. They're Bible heroes. You've got to actually do something and go through some troubles to make it into the Bible, into the hall of fame of, of believers would be the Bible. But all of us regular rank-and-file believers are also put through trouble. What does the Scripture say on this subject? Let me share a few Scriptures for 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you here desire to live a godly life? Okay, all of you. <laughs> all of you who put your hands up, all of you who didn't put your hand up, <laughs> um, who still desire that, what's the Bible say? There will be trouble. As you live out the Christian life, even in a free country like America, Individuals you know will give you trouble. And throughout the world, Christians are going through quite a bit of persecution. In uh, Nigeria, it's really bad now. It's a hot spot, as well as China. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises how many sons that he receives? Every. And that includes daughters. Every single person that comes to Christ, God is going to then say, okay, now that I have you, we're going to get to work on you. C.S. Lewis said that coming to Christ can be like a trip to the dentist, which may not look attractive to you unless you have a dentist you really like. I like my dentist. It's always generally good, but I think back in C.S. Lewis's day, they, they, it wasn't as pain-free as today. But, but he'd say you can go to the dentist because you have a problem. You got a pain, so you go to the dentist. And maybe you come to Christ because you got woken up by a problem. Something bad happened, or somebody died in your life, or something. The elevator finally got to the top. I'm a soul, and there's a God. So you go to God because you you have one issue, one existential crisis. But then when you get to the dentist, 
he has this, or she has this horrible um, tendency to be concerned with all the teeth in your mouth and the quality of your gums. And they'll start drilling and pulling and cutting and slicing anything that looks out of shape if you let them. And so it is with God. If you come to God, He's going to bang you into the shape He needs you in. He needs to... It's not that He doesn't love us as we are, but He's making us into a shape that can love Him more and receive more of His love. Proverbs 17.3, Scott mentioned last week, but it's worth looking at twice. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. That's a very difficult picture. If you think about it, if you think about a crucible, a container that can get very hot that holds solid silver, and it gets so hot that that silver turns into liquid, so you can pour it out. That's very hot. That's what you use a crucible for. You can get a furnace and do the same with gold. But then what the Lord does is his hand is the container that takes your heart. Well, according to that picture, he applies the heat and he liquefies it so he can shape it like he wants. That's not a picture of a trip to Disney World. Unless you don't like Disney World. Lamentations three thirty-one, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief. God is over all things in your life, including grief. Any preacher who tells you that coming to Christ will decrease all your grief doesn't know the scripture and shouldn't be listened to. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So that's the good news. If he causes pain in my life, I know he'll bring relief according to how much relief he has to give. How much the abundance of his steadfast love, let's say he never runs out of love. So he can always bring relief, no matter how bad. But it it says, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Is it possible that pains come into the Christian's life and God doesn't like it? but ordains it anyway. Absolutely. God's never cavalier about our pain. He doesn't say, well, that doesn't matter. (laughs) Stinks to be you. (laughs) That's what heaven says. You know, if you pray, if you're saying your prayers, God help me, and you hear a big, stinks to be you, you know, the universe is not a very happy place. (laughs) But that's not the truth. The truth is, He's never happy about your pains, but he puts you through them anyway. You might say, well, I don't like that. Well, you're going to have to just trust his wisdom. Trust his wisdom. Just like the child whose parent takes her to the dentist. (laughs) And then they get a shot. And I love dentists. I don't want to pick on dentists, but you know what I mean. They can pinch you. Why did you take me here, mother? Because I love you. You'll understand when you're older. James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces something. What? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness, it's going to produce something too. What? That you'll be perfect. And that perfect means mature. Lacking in nothing. So we see it's not just David who goes through a lot and God works on them, it's all of us who are believers. And I hope everyone in this room is a believer in Christ. If not, I don't, I don't want to be mealy mouth about this. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I want you to know my intention is to get you to change your mind within the next 30 minutes. I, <laughs> I have every desire to see you come to know your God, be forgiven of your sins, and have a joyous forever But I know that most of you probably are Christians. And so God is going to bring trouble to your life too. Maybe you don't have an angry king who's bad at throwing spears chasing you around. Now, so we're going to have to talk another sermon about some pain. But before I do, I want a quick parenthesis. All right? Because of where we are in the scripture, we've got to talk and and make sense of what's happening and... 
and, and making sense of a man constantly under stress is something we're going to have to talk about. But don't get the idea that the Christian life is without joy. I, I'm not, I don't celebrate suffering as, yay, let's suffer. In fact, I would go the other way and say my life has had way more joy once I became a Christian than it had before I was a Christian. Um, Christians are a strange breed. If they really are nuts about Jesus, they can laugh when they suffer. They'll tell jokes at the strangest times. Right? They could be dying of cancer and cracking jokes because, not because they're happy about cancer, because they have confidence in the holder of time. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rescue them. And, and, and the Christian life is one of joy. It's one of peace while you're in the storm. It's one of unexpected surprises of God's closeness when you're hurting. And then there are times when you're just not hurting and it's just, it's good. Nevertheless, there's pain in this life. There's pain in this life if you're not a believer. Sometimes I, I when, when suffering, I think, how do people do this without Jesus? Without some certainty of a win? How much pain do you want to go through? But God never wastes any of the pain in my life or your life. He brings it in so I can share his holiness. So let's do this like a math equation. Simple math because I don't do any other kind of math. This is how suffering works in our lives, all right? We put into the equation effort. To endure suffering, you've got to try. You can't sit there like a lump, whining and crying and feeling sorry for yourself. You've got to, you've got to play the hand you're dealt. You cannot sit around worrying about someone else's cards, right? How come I was born with this disease, this person was not born with this disease? Well, I don't know, but guess what? Tomorrow morning, you'll still have the disease, and that person won't. You've got to play the hand you're dealt. Why did my father have to be a crumb who beat my mom and ran away when my friend's father didn't? I don't know. I don't know. But if that's your hand, that's the one you play. So there is effort. That's, that's our math. We add the effort. Then God makes a promise. Sufficient grace. My grace is sufficient for you. His grace is always going to be enough. Meaning, grace meaning he freely will give you what you need to get by. As God pointed out, you're not going to make it because God never gives you too much to handle. He will give you too much to handle. He wants you to find that breaking point so you can stop being confident in yourself. Chesterton said a hundred years ago that the problem with the modern man, and it's only gotten worse, the problem with the modern man is he has too much confidence in himself and not enough confidence in his ideas. And, and, and a healthy man reverses that. He has no confidence in himself, but he knows what the truth is. So God will give you more than you can handle. And then he'll come alongside and give you the strength to endure. That's his part of the equation. I put forth the effort. <laughs> he gives me the grace. Now, you might think, well, then that equals victory. But there's one more piece that has to go in the equation that the scripture is very clear on. The missing ingredient is you have to add in encouraging words from faithful friends. Didn't expect that. It doesn't sound that spiritual, does it? Words, words. People have to say things to one another if you're gonna get through this. We need people who will speak truth to us who love us. So for our maps, let's... Let's capture this. Really, it's a summary of everything we're going to talk about today. Fellow believers carrying burdens of their own are needed to give us the strength that we need to endure. This is a, a biblical principle. It goes all through. What we have here is, all through the Bible, what we have here is a living example of it. As Jonathan does this for David, and I'm not going to trace how he ran into these hills and how... Saul ran away today. We're just going to look at the part, verse 15 to 18, where Jonathan visits David, which is kind of cool. 
Jonathan is working with his dad, the king. He's not on his dad's side, but heck, he's his son. And he sneaks off to the enemy camp, David's camp. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. What else is new? David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. How many of you have been to Ziph at Horish? I don't know where it is either. You can look it up in your Bible. <laughs> and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. So somehow he, he knows and he goes and finds him. Uh, his dad would look at this as a betrayal. Because his dad, Saul, wants to go and find David and kill him. But Jonathan is, loves David and is a good man. So he goes and he finds him. And then it says, and he strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan had a reason to go. What was it? Verse 17, he said to him, David, he's talking to David, Dave, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. How does he know these things, by the way? God had told David through Samuel that he would be king. So Jonathan has not doubted God's word. So he's going and he's telling it to the ears of his friend David. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They're always swearing their loyalty to each other. I don't know why. They're just into that. And David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. What was the purpose of Jonathan's visit? Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. And we're going to put that right in our map. I took it right out of the verse. He strengthened his hand in God. What a beautiful phrase that is. So if, you, if you're, we could, that's the next thing in our map. There it is. How did he strengthen David's hand in God? He just spoke to him. He, talk, he told him the truth. Jonathan didn't bring any solutions. David, I know you're on the run. David, I know you could die. David, I know your family is in trouble. <laughs> I'm going to get you out of this thing, David. That's what I'd want to hear. I got 20 more men who are going to join. And I'm going to trick my dad. I'm going I'm to give him a bunch of Benadryl. And when he falls asleep, I'm going to tie him up. You know, don't worry about this stuff. He doesn't say any of that stuff. All he does is bring him words. But the Bible says he strengthened David's hand in God. In other words, the effect on David, who was apparently scared and needed a salve, was Jonathan, was, the, was a solution. The effect on David was, okay, okay, I'm ready to fight. I was, I was at the end of my rope. Well, I've been strengthened in my God. And all he brought was words, just words. Just words. Words can be wasted. Words can be useless. Words can be hurtful. But words can save your life. Two observations, and each of them is an application. This is going to be... For those of you who are always at Harvest, you know that very few of my sermons have a lot of applications, okay? I, I let you figure that out yourself. This one is almost all application. Because um, the, the observations, if you, read the, if you hear this and think about this, it should be obvious what we and I, you and I should do for one another. So, the first is, Jonathan did not carry David's burden for him. He didn't carry David's burden. Instead, he strengthened the hands that had to carry the burden. David's trial is open-ended. David is under stress. He writes about his stress in, in the Psalms all the time. If you think you're the only person who's ever been anxious and frightened as a believer, you are wrong. Look at David. He says, I weep and I fill my bed with tears and I'm scared and help me, God. You ever feel like that? David felt like that. And one of the hardest things to go through in a trial is not knowing when this sucker's going to end. If you could tell me, I will feel better or the trouble will go away on, in, in two weeks. And tell me the day, I'll just hang on. <laughs> but open-ended trials, they're the most stressful. And David's in the middle of an open-ended trial. He, he's on the run. He's seen many people killed as he's gotten chased and that, that burdens his heart. He's seen his family uprooted and had to, they became fugitives. What else bad is going to happen to me? I don't know. And John, Jonathan, I should use his full name. It's not like he's giving me permission to call him John. 
Jonathan anticipates his friend's distress. He's a thoughtful man. He made an effort to visit. <laughs> I got to go talk to my buddy. And, and I'm sure it was risking that. And then when he found him, he spoke words of hope and friendship. David, listen to me. He probably grabbed him by the scruff here and went, pull yourself together, Dave. You're going to be the king. Who, who told you God's going to be, that you're going to be the king, David? Who told you? David's like, God, right. Has God ever lied? David's more like, no. Okay, then. Quit your crying. Quit writing all these sad psalms. Cheer up, little feller. <laughs> I don't know what he said exactly. What he didn't do was he did not encourage a victim mindset, which is very popular for us today. Everyone wants to be a victim. You're a star if you're a big enough victim. You can get awards if you're a victim. <laughs> you can sue people. You can get lawyers. And then you can sit around with other people and talk about who made you a victim and how awful they are. Jonathan didn't do any of that. Look, David, if anyone ever needed a Jewish lawyer, it's David. That's a joke because they're all Jews in the story. Did you get that? I don't know. I mean, the king is oppressing him unrighteously. Jonathan doesn't come to say, oh, isn't this stink? He doesn't join him. There, there are times when, when Christians will, hoping to lift up their friend, go and join them in a pity party. Help them complain about those who are abusing them. Does that help anybody? Jonathan doesn't do that. And he also doesn't feed his own ego by trying to be David's savior. In our culture, if hardship comes, someone needs to fix it for us. Jonathan's approach is, you got this man, soldier on. Galatians 6, Paul gives us instructions directly on how we're supposed to do what Jonathan did. Right? Here it is. From God to us. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Law of Christ is to love. If I'm burdened, you can help me bear it. <laughs> if you're burdened, I bear your burden. Skip into verse 4. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. What does that, that last bit mean? Bear one another's burdens, but you've got to carry your own load. If you have someone who has emotional distress and they run to a counselor, do you want to know when it's not going to work? When they want that counselor to fix the problem. And it's the same with a friend. If someone else is going to fix your problem, you're not going to improve. <laughs> it's not going to work. Because then you're, you're boasting in your neighbor. But you have to do your own work. You have to bear your own load. Both are true. And we see this beautifully in Jonathan. He doesn't fix David's problem. He doesn't help him at all, really, in any tangible way. He just talks to him. Okay, do you get what I said? You're going to be king? Everything's going to be all right? Yeah, okay, got to go. See ya. And he's gone. And David doesn't say, well, it's Jonathan's fault. He knew I was in trouble and he could have done more. I can't tell you how much I hear that. I hear a lot. They knew and they didn't do anything. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We do care about one another. We do help one another. But you've got to figure out at which part it's the other person's job to get themselves out of the problem. We are the strengtheners of one another, but we are not the saviors of one another. You know, um, how can I... Back in the 80s, everyone was using the word codependent. In the drug world, it's called enabling. But it happens all the time among others. They, 
people are hurting and someone else comes to help them and they feel gratified. I'm here to help. I'm the Savior. And they don't let the person help themselves. Parents do it for kids. They don't, it's your burden, kid. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to strengthen your hand in God. You know, uh, addicts just abuse their families because they're, they've got a God they have to serve, right? They have to serve their pleasure. So they will lie to people they never thought they'd lie to, steal from those they never thought they'd steal from. And every time they come for help, there's someone in the family who thinks they're going to be the Savior and save the person, and all they're doing is keeping them in the trap. If David had quit, he would have failed. And it wouldn't have been Jonathan's fault. David had been dealt a... a, If you've been dealt a mess, God dealt you the cards. And God didn't deal them, so you'd fold. Never think about suicide, by the way. I don't know if anyone is, but it strikes me as a good time to point that out. Because no matter how bad you feel, if you kill yourself, you're going to create other people who feel just as bad as you do, and I know you don't want that. If, if this is the hand you're dealt, you've got to play it. But you're not alone. David put forth the effort. God's grace with God. God, God just trust me, Dave. So, so he's about to get caught by Saul. And we had some really cool ways of escape before. This one's kind of boring now. We're getting used to them. But the next thing you know, somebody calls Saul last minute and says, hey, Philistine's over there. Let's go fight him. And he goes, ah, I'll get you later, Dave. And he runs away. That's it. God's got his back. So he has God's grace. He has his own effort. But without Jonathan, would he fold? He might. He might have folded. We don't know. All we know is Jonathan strengthened him. And that's the ministry we want to copy. You to copy. Me to copy. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. You know, we, we want you to do ministry. Every, the way God's church is supposed to work is every single person does what God gifted them to do, taking the opportunities around them. Some teach the kids. Some serve what's going on on a Sunday morning or a Friday night or a Sunday night. Some evangelize. Some do this. Some do that. But all are called to use their tongues to strengthen weak brothers and sisters. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Your God will come with a vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. You've got to have the guts to say to someone, God's really there and he is going to get you out of this. You don't go in saying, well, you're right, I don't know. It does stink to be you and yeah, I'm glad I'm not you because you're in trouble. I got to go. That doesn't help anybody. You've got to have the confidence that you're God and declare it. Strengthen those weak knees. Every believer has this responsibility. Faithful folk get weak. Right? The best, what you might call strong Christian. Sometimes we like to call people good Christian, strong Christian, faithful. We put those adjectives because we're impressed that they are really committed do you think those people don't get weak? Well, they do. Because God tests them to show them they're weak too. Christians lose strength. Believers fear the worst. Maybe we also need to be willing to show people. I don't mean you go bearing your laundry to everyone you see, but if you're scared to death or in a mess or, or in a jam or you're suffering and nobody knows but you, it's only your pride keeping that in. But we must not, when someone comes to us, be the saviors of one another. And, and, and that's the hard thing to figure out. When am I, where's my boundary? <laughs> Some people will wear you out if you do not. Often people come to me for advice because I'm the pastor. 
<laughs> oh, they'll go to the other pastors. And, and, and whenever I'm asked, I, I make it a point now, I didn't know this early on, but I've learned the lesson, that at some point I've got to ask, what do you want to do? People will sit and say, this is my problem, that's my problem. This, and I'm like, wow, that is a problem. I'm, I'm crying with them. We're, you know, tissues are flying. But at some point I've got to say, what do you want to do? And then normally it wakes them up. Often I get, I don't know. That's how I know I need a boundary here. <laughs> this person seems to think I'm going to fix it. So I ask, how can I help you in this situation? What I'm really asking is, how can I help you stand? And you've got to do that. That's, that's one of the ways you know. Ask, what is it you want to do? And if they I don't know then you're not going to get anywhere further. People need to be encouraged to see themselves as the active agent in their mess. I know this. <laughs> you don't get this kind of psycho stuff from me normally, do you? But it's really true. You know, Jonathan had to let David see he was in a mess. Yet he encouraged him. He didn't help him. David, you still got to stay on the run, watch your back, <laughs> don't curl up in a ball and suck your thumb, or my father's going to stab you. <laughs> but I think you got this. And by the way, lots of people who you think are so weak, they're done. I've seen them turn around. They always turn around on the same thing when they begin to realize, I've got to play the hand. I've got the steering wheel. I'm panicked, but I'm the one driving this boat. Or car, or Choo-choo train, whatever you want to call your life. Second application, observation. We are responsible to be like Jonathan, proactively using our words to build up and not to tear down. We, we've, the ministry is all of ours. The most powerful tool in the human toolbox, words. Words. And everyone's got them and everyone can create them. And that's something you can create, the most powerful thing humans have, and that's words. And it really is. In your own individual life, you can probably go back in time. And if I said to you, tell me someone who said some words to you that changed your life, you could find five different occasions. You could. This coach said that. This teacher said this. My mom said that. And I remember that moment. Words. Words start wars. Words start wars. Families. <laughs> Therefore, since you have that power in your mouth, you must always ask, and I must always ask, what effect will the words I'm about to say have on the ears they're about to land on? Trust me, I've been asking myself this question all my life because I'm the kind of guy who naturally without meaning to, puts his foot in his mouth. It's very natural for me. It's a natural position. It just fits right in there. I have a ten and a half foot, ten and a half mouth. It just goes. But being a Christian has taught me, you never stop thinking this. What effect can, Proverbs twelve eighteen? There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your, your tongue, it's one or the other. My tongue. You might say, well, I'm just not going to go talk to anyone down on their luck. That way I don't have to hurt them. No cowards allowed. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Everyone here is responsible for the thoughts you put into other people's heads at work at school, in your family, in the car, at Walmart. You are responsible for the thoughts that come from your tongue. They're going to have an effect of some kind when they land. So what God is saying is put the right thoughts in people's heads. He's saying, Mike, don't say everything that pops into your head. What a good lesson. I've been learning it my whole life. Just when I think I've got it, I'll blow it. But then I, I try to say I'm sorry and fix it. <laughs> but
But for the most part, I don't say everything that pops in my head. People will say, man, you, you said that one thing and, you know, maybe you shouldn't have said that. And I'll be like, you're right, and I'll fix it. But then I'll think, you don't know the eight other things that came to my mind at the same time. <laughs> it would have been worse. <laughs> Just because you think of something doesn't mean you have to say it, even if it's true. Next, go to war with complaining. Biblical principles. I'm going to give you some more text, but go to war with complaints. No one has ever benefited any time from anybody complaining. We all do it sometimes, but it needs to be something that just slips and you catch yourself whining. Christians should be the least. I mean, we don't complain about the weather. We don't complain. The weather! You live in Pennsylvania, I don't care that you're cold. It snows. Then in the summer, it's so hot, shut up. Nobody feels better because you were complaining about how hot you are. Nobody goes, man, I felt, I wasn't feeling good and Susie told me how hot she was and I was like, man, those words really built me up. You don't complain about the food. We don't complain. Nothing comes from complaints. And when you put them in other people's ears who are already having a bad day, maybe you don't even know how bad it is, you're just putting weight on them. Make deliberate thoughtfulness a habit. This is something I work on all the time, brothers and sisters. So I'm preaching to me and I'm practicing it and I'm staying on it. Jonathan was so thoughtful. I often just don't think to think about it. So how's David doing? He's running from dad, but he's going to be okay. Jonathan had to actually use a little imagination. (laughs) He's like, I need to go see if David's okay. Ephesians 4.29 should guide us all. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I love the way that God puts that in the Bible. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. It's in your mouth. Just don't let it out. Right? The Bible says from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you might think, well, my heart thinks all these evil things. Yeah, that's your old nature. But the fact that you're a Christian is shown that you don't let them out. And the abundance of your heart then is joy in Christ and obedience. The corrupted, that's in your mouth. Just don't let it out. But only such as is good for building up. Just look at every human you see as someone who's under construction and you are one of the subcontractors for that moment. Even, hey, you know, I went out to eat with some friends uh, two nights ago and a place I'd never been. And, and the waitress was just very personable. We were indecisive and she kept coming back. She paced everything. Well, she did a terrific job. So, <laughs> what do I say to her? Can I have a check? Thank you. You, you got to stop and think. How can I build her up? You say, well, I don't have to build up the waitress. We don't have to, but you can. Isn't that exciting? So I pulled her aside and said, you were delightful. She was like, thank you, because she was. So there, I did something good once. (laughs) That's once. Looking for number two, maybe tonight. As fits the occasion. So it wouldn't have been right for me to say, you're wonderful. By the way, I love those shoes, earrings, great stuff. Love your eyes. I mean, after a while, she's like, this is a little too personal, dude. I'm like, you're right. That it may give grace to those who hear. The Bible isn't defining what you should say. You actually have to think. Isn't God trusts us to think? I'm going to look at my situation and give grace to those who hear. I'm standing around with all the guys. Now I want to, I got to be careful. Try to build someone up and... Then they all dogpile on them. Because guys do that. (laughs) Well, can I offer some things? I've learned some of them as a pastor the hard way and the good way. 
When you know someone's suffering, don't avoid them. As a pastor, I, I got this job, right? I'm 33 when I started, and they're like, okay, someone's dying. You need to go visit them. Like, I, I, up till age 33, I didn't visit dying folks unless they were in my family. And none of them had died yet. <laughs> I had a run on death since then, but at the time, none of them. Well, I don't know what to say. So I learned, don't avoid suffering people. I know sometimes it's easier to avoid them because you don't want to say something stupid. But presence is a ministry. And if you don't know what to say, say you care. That's enough. That'll build up the hurting. That'll strengthen the arm. Promise to pray with them, pray for them, and maybe do it right then. And if not, remember that you promised. Christians are constantly promising to pray for people. I'm very careful not to make that promise unless I know I'm going to remember. Because <laughs> I got a feeling God remembers. I'll pray for you, brother. God's, you know, we're going to get to heaven and God's going to have a list of, on, on the board. Okay, these are all the people you didn't pray for and we'll probably have to like spend a thousand years in our room praying for people, you know, or not. When encouraging, if a person begins to lean exclusively on you for your words, remind them that they're the agent of change. Remind them that God has their back. And give yourself boundaries. Some people will wear you out because you want to help and they don't want to do it themselves. And you have to discern that because you're not going to be any good to anybody if somebody destroys you. When you see those tempted to give up, tell them confidently, God arrives for everyone who waits. Do you want to have an encouraging Bible study? Get yourself on the online, open some Bible app or whatever and put in the word wait and just read every place where people wait for the Lord. So you can tell somebody, a Christian, without worrying if you're wrong, God arrives for every one of us that wait. That, that is, is not a small theme in the Bible. God is constantly saying, I'm going to be there. People say, when? He ain't telling you. You wait. Okay. <laughs> Take them to the Bible. Psalm 23. The most read, not listened to, or thought about psalm in the Bible. It's an awesome psalm for someone who's hurting. If you open it up and say, look, the Lord is your shepherd. Because you know why? He guides you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You don't know the way out, but he's going to guide you. His rod and your staff, they're going to comfort you. He's going to push you along. And when you walk through the valley, he's with you. Read Isaiah 40 to them. Isaiah 40, which the part where the eagle's wings always makes it on the Christian junk, right? If you buy a Christian plate with, with an eagle on it, it's got Isaiah 40 on it. Or some plaque, Christian junk. You know, you have a beautiful picture of something outside, and then you got to write words all over it. I don't know why. I think you should put a note under it saying, please read this verse while looking at this picture but hey, if you want words all over your pictures, that's fine. The one about the eagle's wings. Have you, open that Bible verse up and you'll see it says it's written to people at the end of their rope who don't think they have any more strength. That's who it's for. It's for people at the end of their rope who's saying, I can't hold on anymore. And it says, look, vigorous young men will run till they stumble and fall down. Great athletes will come to the end and they will fail. But those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. It's speaking to the exhausted, not the strong. Tell them. To dying people, you tell them, sorrow is for the night, joy comes in the morning. We have a society that doesn't deal with death, doesn't talk about death, is always surprised by death and cannot handle death. Sometimes I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, oh, well, I know she's depressed. She's been depressed for months. Really, why? 
Well, her husband died. When? Six months ago. That's not called depressed. That's called sad. That's called mourning. Her husband died. We don't have any idea what to do with death. But the, the Bible tells us, talk about it. Think about it. It's right there in Ecclesiastes. It's better to be in the house of, 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 a, of a death than it is in a party because that's, that's, the, that's the living. Take it to heart. Good time for me to tell you about a couple ministries at Harvest that you should always keep in mind, hopefully not for yourself. We have divorce care and grief share. They're both separate ministries. They meet at different campuses at different times. You can find out. They're 13-week classes, and they're tremendous. They are not, they're not support groups where everyone sits in a circle and doesn't judge each other and talks about how miserable life is and goes home sad. They, are, they, are, they, they help people at the end of their rope. In, it's hard to help divorced people unless you're divorced people. Even then, it's hard to help. It's hard to help someone who someone's died. We offer these things to strengthen the hands of others. And I've, I've been in both the classes. They're tremendous. You should know that. You say, well, I'm not divorced. You don't know anybody who's divorced? What color's the sky in your world? Right? Well, no one died on me. They will, but even if they don't for a long time, you don't know anyone who has someone dies, you can reach out and say, look, go to my church for this thing. You can't be afraid to talk to people who are dying about dying. I talked to one person who had cancer they thought might kill her and it didn't. And I just started asking her questions and talking about what the Bible says about certain things. And about 15 minutes later, I said to her and her husband, we don't have to keep talking about this. And they said, no, no one does. (laughs) No one does. We want to talk about it. No one asks us. Because they're your friends. And you're know, I'm not going to talk about brain cancer. Can we talk about sports? And you say, me? Isn't that what pastors are supposed to do? You're, you're missing it. What's the Bible say? Here's one example. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 11. For God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us to go to hell. Who do you say that to? A dying person. That's who this is for. He didn't destine us to go to hell but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake, that means alive, or asleep, that means dead, we might live with him. You say, yeah, well, I don't want to bring that up with my dying friend. Well, then you're disobeying the next verse. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another. Tell the person who's afraid to die, don't worry, honey. Christ didn't die on a cross so you'd go to hell. You're not going to die. You're just going to shed the mortal coil. You're about to have the best day of your life and leave the rest of us crying. The gospel is the greatest encouragement of all. Remind people that they have a God who became man and went to a cross to pay the punishment for their sin so if they believe on him, they can have eternal life. And now is the time, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm telling you, here's the message you need to hear. You're not going to make up for your sin. And you're a sinner, just like me. You might say, I'm not as bad as you. Well, that may be what you think, and you could be right, I don't know. Or you might say, I'm worse than you. And that might be what you think, and you could be right, I don't know. But one thing I do know is neither of us are good enough to get to heaven, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, never sinned, and he went to a cross to pay for me and you. So believe in him. Give him your life. Now come join us. Don't just come to our church service. Join the family. How do you do it? By faith. You just ask him. Words? Yeah, just words. His words are powerful. Father, forgive me. Jesus, come into my life. I give it to you. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior and he rose from the dead, and you pray that from the heart, he will. Your life will change. In the fall of 2016, I ran into a very unexpected wall of sorrow that I didn't see coming. Some of you were here then, and you know that. Some of you don't. I'm not getting into the details. But it wasn't my first rodeo. I don't know why people say that. 
one of these days I'm going to go participate in a rodeo. And when I get out, I'm going to say it. That was my first rodeo right there. <laughs> but I knew going in the lessons that I had been teaching others. I, I learned them myself, and I've been telling others for decades. So I knew I was going to have to endure and put forth the effort, not whine. Well, you can cry a lot, but you don't have to feel sorry for yourself. You trust God. He's going to get me out of this. I knew God's grace was sufficient. And I knew sometimes when you're down, not a lot of people can be your Jonathan. First, they have to know you. Second, they've got to kind of understand enough to be sympathetic. So my daughter Mandy, she saw her old man fall into trouble and so she came to me with a, one of those pieces of wood with words on it. Jesus junk. <laughs> this one I kept. It said, actually it's, it's, it's Frank Sinatra junk because what it says is, it says the best is yet to come. She was saying, Dad, you've been teaching us this our whole life, Right? Everything's going to be all right. So she gave me a piece of wood that says the best is just, and I kept that in front of me the whole time. Now it's in my office, and yes, it's a Frank Sinatra song. It's not in the Bible, but the idea is in the Bible. Because <laughs> the Bible says, hope never disappoints us. It is going to be okay. I needed someone to tell me. I needed it. She wasn't the only one, but she was a very important one. Do you need encouragement? Can I tell you what you should do? Ask God, please send me someone to encourage me. Please encourage me. He's answered that prayer for me many times. But better still, all of us need to be on the lookout for those who need their hands strengthened, realizing that's our ministry. You don't have to get training. You don't have to set it on your volunteer schedule. You can do it. All you gotta do is find people whose lives aren't perfect. Do you know any? Just enter in. Don't be afraid. Look, if your heart is right and you're not cavalier, even if you say the wrong thing, your friend will still be encouraged. If you go in like a jerk and say, well, Jesus loves you anyway. I'm sorry your entire family died. Trust me, you're not helping. But if you go in with love for your friend, we, we all want to get to the end of the Christian race and win. Right? Right? Christians out there, isn't that what you want in your life? You want to say like David, or not David, like Paul, I ran the race and I finished, right? We get there together. We get there together. We help each other. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.